take your copy of God's Word and open to Ezekiel chapter 31. We are almost done with these judgment chapters. Of all of the chapters when you're working through a major prophet, there are these, this group of judgment chapters aimed at a number of different nations and these chapters aren't really the reason that you preach through a book, <laughs> but they are part of God's Word and they are important and they are good for us. So we preach them and we study for them and we prepare just like this is any other passage because there is something here for us to glean, I assure you that. Ezekiel chapter 31, let's just read this chapter. In the eleventh year, in the third month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his multitude, Whom are you like in your greatness? Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon, with beautiful branches and forest shade, and of towering height, its top among the clouds. The waters nourished it. The deep made it grow tall, making its rivers flow around the place of its planting, sending forth its streams to all the trees of the field. So it towered high above all the trees of the field. Its boughs grew large and its branches long from abundant water in, all, in its shoots. All the birds of the heavens made their nests in its boughs. Under its branches, all the beasts of the field gave birth to their young, and under its shadow lived all great nations. It was beautiful in its greatness, in the length of its branches, for its roots went down to abundant waters. The cedars in the garden of God could not rival it, nor the fir trees equal its boughs. Neither were the plane trees like its branches. No tree in the garden of God was its equal in beauty. I made it beautiful in the mass of its branches, and all the trees of Eden envied it that were in the garden of God. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because it towered high and set its top among the clouds, its heart was proud of its height. I will give it into the hand of a mighty one of the nations. He shall surely deal with it as its wickedness deserves. I have cast it out. Foreigners, the most, the most ruthless of nations, have cut it down and left it. On the mountains and in all the valleys, its branches have fallen and its boughs have been broken in all the ravines of the land, and all the peoples of the earth have gone away from its shadow and left it. On its fallen trunk dwell all the birds of the heavens, and on its branches are all the beasts of the field. All this is in order that no trees by the waters may grow to towering height or set their tops among the clouds, and that no trees that drink water may reach up to them in height. For they are all given over to death, to the world below, among the children of man, with, who, with those who go down to the pit. Thus says the Lord God, 
On the day the cedar went down to Sheol, I caused mourning. I closed the deep over it and restrained its rivers. And many waters were stopped. I clothed Lebanon in gloom for it, and all the trees of the field fainted because of it. I made the nations quake at the sound of its fall when I cast it down to Sheol with those who go down to the pit. And all the trees of Eden, the choice and best of Lebanon, all that drink water were comforted in the world below. They also went down to Sheol with it, to those who were slain by the sword. Yes, to those who were its arm, who lived under its shadow among the nations. Whom are you like in glory and in greatness among the trees of Eden? You shall be brought down with the trees of Eden to the world below. You shall lie among the uncircumcised with those who are slain by the sword. This is Pharaoh and all his multitude, declares the Lord God. Last year, August 27th, 2022, the Utah State football team defeated the mighty University of Connecticut. 31 to 20. Never mind that UConn had gone 1 and 11 the previous year, and that one win came against the great powerhouse of Yale. Nevertheless, as you might expect, there was a picture tweeted showing a Utah State fan holding a sign that read, We want Bama. Well, that fan got his wish. Precisely one week later, the Yukon Huskies walked out of Bryant-Denny Stadium completely overwhelmed, demolished really, having been beaten 55 to 0. Now just for comparison purposes, Yukon had 136 yards of total offense. Alabama had 559 yards of offense. Oh, how we wouldn't like to have that offense back this year. Technically, though, you could call it a shellacking. Now, Alabama went on last year to lose twice in the season, both on the road, two weeks apart, Tennessee and then at LSU. Alabama did not make the playoffs. They were not crowned the winner of college football championship 2022. That honor belonged to the Georgia Bulldogs. They went on to be undefeated. They completely routed the TCU Horned Frogs 65-7 in the national championship game. I don't say that to discourage you, a house full of Alabama fans and a couple of oddball schismatics that we have here. I do have a point. Imagine for just a moment that after all was over, the season had played out. Imagine that same Utah State fan at the end of the year, just after Georgia has won the national championship. Imagine them holding up not a we want Bama sign, but now they're holding up one that says we want Georgia. Right after they just went six and seven including a 10-38 to 38 loss to Memphis in the Serve Pro First Responders Bowl. I had to look it up. That's a real thing. 
Anyway, what would you think of that fan? Well, you'd think they'd lost their ever-loving mind. That's what you would, you would think. They got shellacked by Bama 55 to nothing, and Bama didn't even make the playoffs. Now they want an undefeated Georgia, a team that just won the national championship in blowout fashion. I mean, any team can beat any other team on any given day, right? We want Georgia. I'll take the bet on Georgia 100 out of 100 times against Utah State, especially last year. I think we can all agree that if that fan would have done that, he would have had far more confidence than he should have had. You may even quote Proverbs 16, 18, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. Georgia is a powerhouse. Utah State is a powder puff. That's just the landscape of the two schools. Well, that story just about perfectly parallels the message here in Ezekiel 31, not to a Utah State fan, but to Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So, just as Ezekiel has prophesied against Tyre, and then it was followed by a judgment specifically against the leaders of Tyre, so here in Ezekiel 31, there is a judgment pronounced specifically against Pharaoh, king of Egypt. But as we read through here, you could tell it certainly included the, the people, the citizens of Egypt as, as well. And as we've seen before, leaders are held to a high standard by God. And it is God who removes kings and sets up kings. So He has a right to hold them to a high standard. But don't think that the people of Egypt aren't going to be affected by this bad decision of a king here in Egypt. They certainly will. It's not as if Pharaoh's going to be taken out and another Pharaoh's going to take his throne and the people would just carry on with life as usual. That's not what's going to happen. In this case, as goes the leader, Pharaoh, so goes the people. So what we're going to see in this chapter, you may have picked up on it, as you read, I know Charlie has been looking forward to the poetry that is contained here, his favorite genre of literature. But this is really an allegory. It's, it's a story or, or, or a poem or even a, a picture that, that tells us something more than we see on the surface. It, re it reveals a deeper meaning. And what God does here is He compares Egypt to Assyria. I mean, the vast majority of the chapter is not about Egypt at all. It's about Assyria. But then at the end, he brings it back around. I hope that you will get that point by the time we're done. The name of my sermon this evening is Powder Puff Pride, based on my wondrous illustration from earlier. In this text, God informs the king of Egypt that Babylon has conquered far better nations than him and then God, through Babylon, will have no trouble conquering Egypt too. That's the point of this entire chapter. So it begins here, verse 1. In the eleventh year, in the third month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. So back in chapter 29, the prophecy against Egypt was issued in the tenth year, in the tenth month, on the twelfth day of the month. In the last chapter, chapter 30, verse 20, 
It's dated to the 11th year, the first month, and the seventh day of the month. Now here, it's the 11th year, the third month, and the first day of the month. So just a few months after chapter 29, less than two months after the previous chapter, we now are getting another prophecy about Egypt. Just bang, bang, bang. Ralph Alexander actually writes, quote, the implication was that Egypt was still proud, end quote. I'm sure that is correct, but we do need to remember these prophecies were not delivered to the Egyptians. These prophecies recorded here by Ezekiel were relayed to Jewish captives in Babylon, not to the Egyptians, at least not directly. If they're still proud, it's it's not because they heard this message and then they rejected it. They just were confident they could defeat Nebuchadnezzar. They at least took his threats as idle threats, and so they ignored them. Anyway, so just a few short months after receiving this prophetic judgment against Egypt, Ezekiel receives what is termed here another word of the Lord. Look, can I just mention while we're here that when God speaks, He speaks authoritatively every time. God does not because He cannot give some type of lesser revelation, some type of lesser than inspired second tier prophecy like the Pentecostal movement today would have us to believe along with others. No, listen, when, when and if and when God speaks, it is the word of the Lord. It is the word of Yahweh and it is binding on us and we are required to follow it. That's just one more reason to believe that God has told us everything He wants us to know in this book that we call the Bible. Otherwise, there's all kinds of conflicting information out here in the world, supposedly from God, and that's not possible because God is not going to contradict Himself. Now, the canon of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, the canon of Scripture is closed. There is no further revelation. God has spoken. Okay, let's move on. Two through nine. Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his multitude. So here, this, is, this is who it is addressed to. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and his multitude. Here is the message. Whom are you like in your greatness? Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon with beautiful branches and a forest shade of towering height, its top among the clouds. The waters nourished it. The deep made it grow tall, making its rivers flow around the place of its planting, sending forth its streams to all the trees of the field. It towered high above the trees of the field. Its bows grew large. Its branches long from abundant water in its shoots. All the birds of the heaven made their nests in its bows. Under its branches all the beasts of the field gave birth to their young. Under its shadow lived all great nations. It was beautiful in its greatness. The length of its branches for its roots went down to abundant waters. The cedars in the garden of God could not rival it, nor the fir trees equal its bows. Neither were the plane trees like its branches. No tree in the garden of God was its equal in beauty. 
I made it beautiful in the mass of its branches, and all the trees of Eden envied it that were in the garden of God. This is actually not hard. It is poetry, which we don't like as Americans, but it is not that hard to follow, really, once we point out what's being said. This section is a poetic reminder to Egypt and her multitudes of the fall of Assyria, who is and was a much greater power than that of Egypt. In fact, in its day, the empire of Assyria was considered to be the most powerful empire to that point in human history. Egypt was not that. But Assyria was. And yet, despite the fact that they were so vast and powerful, the Babylonians had conquered them. And that same nation, the Babylonians, are now threatening Egypt. And Pharaoh and his multitudes are saying, we ain't got nothing to worry about. God is saying, oh yes you do. Oh yes you do. Well, let's, let's just quickly work through this, this section, verses 2 through 9. It's, not, it's really not that difficult. So God contrasts Egypt and her greatness with the far greater power of Assyria in these verses. Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt and his multitude, whom are you like in your greatness? And then God points to Assyria and says, let me tell you about them. Let me tell you about them. Assyria is likened to a cedar in Lebanon. And, and likening a nation to a tree is actually pretty common in Scripture. You think of what is told about Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. He's likened to a tree there. Even Jesus, when He talks about the kingdom, He talks about a tree that covers the earth. Well, the cedar in Lebanon is the tallest of the known trees to Ezekiel's Readers, It's at least 80 feet tall at its full height. And so Assyria is illustrated as, as a giant, prosperous tree with beautiful branches and forest shade. It's top among the clouds. This is, this is a magnificent tree. No other tree rivaled this tree. Tree. No other nation rivaled Assyria, including Egypt. That's the point here. Assyria, according to Charles Feinberg, was, quote, unusually magnificent, end quote. Unusually magnificent. Certainly that's the point here. <laughs> As we read through this, and this tree is even compared to trees in the Garden of Eden. I mean, this is, this is unusual. That's what we are supposed to, to get. Assyria had a, had a great water source, the Tigris River. You've probably studied about the Tigris River if you've studied the early chapters of Genesis or perhaps in school. Likewise, Egypt had an unrivaled pride in their river. In their source of water, the Nile. I mean, the, the similarities here are very similar as we work through this. Notice verse 6. 
All the birds of the heavens made their nests in its bows, under its branches all the beasts of the field gave birth to their young, and under its shadow lived all great nations. This, this picture's clear. I mean, everyone in the known world at this time, the smaller nations, the mightier nations, all of them were subject to Assyria. Assyria was dominant. And all of the nations enjoyed a measure of prosperity under the rule of, of Assyria. That's, that's here. And notice the poetic language of verse 8. The cedars in the garden of God could not rival it. In the garden of Eden. That's, a, that's quite a compliment. Now remember, this is poetry. Right? This is, the point here is that Assyria was grand. She was, she was unusually huge. She was unusually magnificent. Assyria was glorious and powerful. This is, this is not to say there's, there was a nation in the Garden of Eden pre-fall or anything like that. That's, that's silly and not the point. The, the greatness of Assyria was extremely extraordinary. That's the point we're to see here. Notice what God says. I made it beautiful. I am running the show. I made it beautiful in the mass of its branches and all the trees of Eden envied it that were in the garden of, of God. This was, this was God's work. It was God's design for the empire of Assyria to rise in prominence. Now look, God is directing Pharaoh's attention along with the people of Egypt. He is directing Pharaoh's attention to look to Assyria as an example. Here's where we go back to the illustration. It's like the mythical Utah State fan holding up the We Want Georgia sign and somebody saying, you couldn't even beat Alabama, much less Georgia. Well, God is saying the same thing here. Egypt, look at Assyria. You can't touch Assyria. You were nothing like Assyria in power, and Babylon conquered them with no trouble. They're not going to have a problem with you, Pharaoh. That's the, that's the point that's being made here. Now, don't miss the truth that God is sovereign over this entire thing. If God desires for Egypt to win... They will, but that's not His will. His, his will is that the Babylonians conquer the Egyptians, and so the Egyptians have no chance whatsoever. Look at Assyria, Egypt. The Babylonians conquered her completely, and they're not going to have any problem with you. Notice verse 10. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because it towered high and set its top among the clouds, its heart was proud of its height. I will give it into the mighty hand of uh, the mighty... I will give it into the hand of a mighty one of the nations. That, uh, it, Babylon is referred to that way a number of times in the book of Ezekiel. He shall surely deal with it as, as its wickedness deserves. I have cast it out. Foreigners, the most... Ruthless of nations have cut it down and left it. On the mountains and in all the valleys, its branches have fallen, its bows have been broken in all the ravines of the land, and all the peoples of the earth have gone away from its shadow 
and left it. On its fallen trunk dwell all the birds of heaven, and on its branches are all the beasts of the field. All this is in order that no trees by the waters may grow to towering height or set their tops among the clouds, and that no trees that drink water may reach up to them in height, for they are all given over to death to the world below among the children of man with who, with those who go down to the pit. So in, in the remainder of the chapter, verses 10 through 18, God explains through Ezekiel the reason for Assyria's fall and thus the reason Pharaoh along with Egypt is going to fall too. And that's, that's what he's getting at. And back in chapter 16, you may remember this, God exposed the underlying primary foundational sin of Sodom. Do you remember what it was? Not homosexuality, though that's what we would think. Now, the primary underlying foundational sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was pride. That led to homosexuality, but it started with pride. It, it's sort of ironic that people walk around with flags that say, Pride today, but anyway, I, I'm not going to preach on that. Here, as God describes the sin of Assyria, the same sin is pronounced. Notice, because it towered high and set its top among the clouds, its heart was proud of its height. Pride. Look, pride is the downfall of any nation. Now listen, the people of Assyria were wicked people. It's one of the reasons that Jonah did not want to go and preach to the Ninevites. Nineveh being the capital city of Assyria. Because they were so wicked. And God, he could not fathom God having mercy on this people. I actually shared some information with you when we went through Jonah a while back. But let me just, let me just share this again. We have time. One expert in Assyrian history writes this of their battles and torture techniques. Listen to this. Quote, some of the victims of the Assyrians, some of the victims were held down while one of the band of torturers inserts his hand into the victim's mouth, grips his tongue, and wrenches it out by the roots. This is one of the ways that they tortured their victims. In another spot, pegs are driven into the ground. To these, another victim's wrists are affixed with cords. His ankles are similarly made fast, and the man is stretched out, unable to move a muscle. The executioner then applies himself to his task. And beginning at the accustomed spot, the sharp knife makes its incision the skin is raised inch by inch until the man is flayed alive. The skins are then stretched out upon the city walls. End quote. These are wicked people. The Assyrians, I mean, they're, they're wicked people. It's, it's really hard to imagine such an evil that would do those type of things. These people were brutally wicked, and because of that... Here, in verse 11, God says, I will give it into the hand of a, mighty, of a mighty one of the nations, referring to Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. He shall surely deal with it as its wickedness deserves. I have cast it out. Now look, the Assyrians have already fallen. God's talking about something that has already occurred here. 
And he's using it as an example. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army are God's tool to bring judgment down on the Assyrians. That doesn't mean the Babylonians weren't wicked. What it means is God chose to use a wicked nation to judge another wicked nation. That's what it means. And God carried out just what He said He would. Foreigners, the most ruthless of nations, have cut it down. On the mountains and in the valleys, its branches have fallen. Its bows have been broken in all the ravines of the land. All the peoples of the earth have gone away from its shadow and left it. On its fallen trunk dwell all the birds of heaven, and on its branches are all the beasts of the field. More more poetic illustration of this cedar tree, but the, the meaning is pretty clear once you figure out what's going on here. Assyria, the the powerful nation that she was, was completely conquered by by the Babylonians. And she believed, or she was believed to be the most powerful nation on the planet, the most powerful empire mankind had known up to that point. And she still failed. Look, once God has had enough, that's it. That's it. And once God had had enough with the Assyrians, He brought the Babylonians into her land to judge her, and He enabled the Babylonians to conquer the Assyrians. It it says here, On its fallen trunk dwell all the birds of the heavens, and on its branches are all the beasts of the field. Most likely referring to all those nations that were once under the shadow of Uh, the Assyrians, those nations that had once befriended Assyria, now they are pouncing on Assyria like buzzards on a dead carcass taking advantage of her fall, just trying to get whatever they can from her. And the reason for this all is because, at least in that day, no other nation would reach such a powerful height. God said, that's enough. That's enough. In fact, Assyria's fall should have taught all the lessons, I mean all the nations a lesson. Don't be prideful. But rulers can be stubborn. I think we can see that in our own nation today. All right, verse 15. Thus says the Lord God, on the day the cedar went down to Sheol, I caused mourning. I closed the deep over it. It restrained its rivers. Many waters were stopped. I clothed Lebanon in gloom for it. And all the trees of the field fainted because of it. I made the nations quake at the sound of its fall when I cast it down to Sheol with all those who go down to the pit. And all the trees of Eden, the choice and best of Lebanon, all that drink water were comforted in the world below. They also went down to Sheol with it, those who are slain by the sword. Yes, those who were its arm, those who lived under its shadow among the nations. The point here is is obvious. Assyria's fall was devastating. Not only to the Assyrians, though. The Assyria's fall was also devastating to all the nations that had found shelter in her. Look at verse 16. I made the nations quake at the sound of its fall. Look, to see the greatest of empires fall should cause lesser nations to fear for their own well-being. 
But apparently, at least in the case of Egypt, that did not happen. Egypt retained her pride and confidence that she could escape the Babylonians and the judgment of God. All of the nations that lived under the shelter of the Assyrian Empire were affected. Those who lived under its shadow among the nations, it said again, the picture being painted here is that the fall was so devastating that it affected not only Assyria, but all of those surrounding nations that depended on her. The, the, the point is, is obvious. Assyria was powerful. More powerful than any nation up to her day, most likely. Certainly more powerful than Pharaoh and Egypt. And yet, when God had enough, once His long-suffering was over, she was brought down. Now the first 17 verses of this chapter have really just been building up. The point of this entire chapter is in verse 18. 1 through 17 is, look at Assyria. Verse 18 is, now look at yourself. Whom are you thus like in glory and in the greatness of the trees of Eden? Remember, that's what it said back in verse 2. Whom are you like in your greatness? That question is directed not to the Assyrians who've already fallen. That question is directed to the Egyptians who think they are not going to fall. Whom are you thus like in glory and in greatness among the trees of Eden? You shall be brought down with the trees of Eden to the world below. You shall lie among the uncircumcised with those who are slain by the sword. This is not Assyria, this is Pharaoh. And all his multitude declares the Lord. What's God saying? To put it bluntly, Egypt, you're nothing. You're nothing. Utah State, you ain't beating Georgia. You couldn't beat Alabama. You're not a football school. You're not even a basketball school. Y'all ought to be playing ping pong. Look, this is the point. Egypt was nowhere near as powerful as Assyria, and yet God destroyed Assyria with no problem whatsoever. Simple. That's not hard. But Egypt remained prideful despite the baselessness of all of her confidence. I mean, she didn't have to think about God. She just needed to look over to Assyria and what happened to them. It's obvious. She was dreaming if she thought she would do what the Assyrians couldn't. And again, remember, this is not a battle merely against the Babylonians. This is a battle against God. That's who they're fighting. A battle they could not win and nobody else can win. You cannot fight God and win no matter what kind of numbers you have. Well, Pharaoh believed that it couldn't happen to him and his people, but he was wrong. You shall be brought down, God says. You shall lie among the uncircumcised, God says. Look, as God destroyed Assyria, Egypt would be destroyed as well. No problem. No problem for God. And they were. They were destroyed. And their insignificant status today among the nations is an enduring testimony to us that God is true to His Word. Egypt is nothing today. They don't have any influence over the world's powers. By the way, this text seems to imply that Pharaoh's burial would not be in the land of Egypt, but it would be away from his own homeland. 
and thus it would be dishonorable to him. You know, the Egyptians, unlike most nations back in this day, the Egyptians, like the Hebrews, actually practiced circumcision. So to be buried with the uncircumcised meant that they would be buried outside the land of Egypt. And as you may very well know, they were meticulous in their burying procedures. That has been proven by archaeology today. The great pyramids come to mind. I'm sure you're acquainted with the elaborate burial rituals of the Egyptian pharaohs. This is, this is a big deal to them. Understand, to a group infatuated with proper burial, because according to their false religion, the burial affected the afterlife. You know, they, they were wrong. They didn't believe in Jesus, but that's what they thought. This was a blow. Pharaoh, you're not going to be buried in the Great Pyramid. You're going to be tossed out on the land in a foreign land. You're not going to have any kind of fancy burial. Now God promises Pharaoh, even in death, he was going to have shame and dishonor. What are we to learn from this chapter? That's a good question. A few things, actually, I think. First... God hates pride. That should be so obvious as you study Scripture. God hates pride. And the sin of pride can and does lead not only individuals into ruin, but nations into ruin. Look, our beloved America has to be in the crosshairs of God. We have to be. Pride is the greatest sin in America today. It is the root of all the other sins that are going on in our country. Let me be clear about this, by the way. The Democrats are not the answer. The Republicans, likewise, are not the answer. Trump is never going to make America great again because he's not addressing the actual issue with our people. Our problem is not higher taxes. Our problem is self Worship and pride. We need repentance as a nation. And if we don't, we will be taken down. Just like Assyria, just like Egypt. God is not going to tolerate pride forever. We're ripe for judgment. And if Romans 1 is true, and I think it is, we're already under it. Alright, that leads into my second point then. First point, God hates pride. Second point, Judgment's coming, and you can't put it off. Pharaoh thought he could. Here. He thought he was going to be able to escape punishment. Look, you may run from mom and dad to put off a spanking for a little while, but you cannot run from the omnipotent God of heaven. It is not possible. Judgment is sure and certain. And, and while I'm on it, let me speak clearly to this point. I mentioned pride earlier. Pride is a sin that will send untold billions to hell and everybody in this room is guilty. There's one escape. One cover from the wrath of God for our sins and that is the work of Jesus alone you flee to Him, receive Him by faith, because He willingly bore God's wrath for every believer on Calvary's cross. He was buried, He rose again the third day, and He is sitting at God's right hand 
in our place, intervening for us right now. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So God hates pride. And judgment's coming. Final point builds from those two. God is sovereign. He's sovereign. Nothing in this chapter would lead you to think anything else. God said, I've purposed it, and I will bring it to pass. He doesn't say that here. He says that elsewhere in Scripture. But it's implied here in Ezekiel 31. When God says He's going to do something, He does it every single time. Egypt could not escape God's sovereign power, and neither can any of us. Look, God is your God whether you believe it or not. The atheist who shakes his fist at God is still yet accountable to the God he rejects. God makes the rules. Whether we agree with them or not is irrelevant. It's His world. He makes the rules. And He has graciously supplied us with an escape from our sins. He didn't have to, but He chose to. But if we refuse that gracious provision, we will stand before this holy, righteous, all-powerful God, and there will be nothing we can do to escape everlasting punishment. He is sovereign. So God hates pride. Judgment's coming. And He's sovereign. So nothing matters more right now or any other moment than for you to make dead level certain you trust in Christ alone for salvation. Because there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. He's the only solid rock. All other ground is sinking sand. Stand with me if you will. Clay, will you dismiss us please?